hello, hello there. It is indeed David Connolly, and that means only one thing. Yes, I'm coming to you with the archaeology news. That news that's brought apart a ship between, of course, Stonepages and the British Archaeological Jobs and Resources website. And, of course, yes, past horizons. Well, before I get started uh, today, let's just let you know I'm actually about to go off on a fabulous little jolly, sorry, um, a very serious conference to Pilsen in the Czech Republic where I'll be talking along with uh, Kate Sloan about the uh, art and archaeology projects that we are up to here in East Lothian and hearing about what other people are doing as well. Yes, we are off to the European Association of Archaeologists conference in Pilsen. That is going to be absolutely superb and I can't wait to let you know how we got on and what we heard as well. But you don't want to hear about that just now. You want to hear what the news is for the past week. Well, of course, all these stories have been collected from various sources. And to view details on each story, including that all-important source, you're going to have to go to the Stone Pages website at news.stonepages.com. Right, the headlines are as follows. We've got early South Americans conquering the Atacama Desert. Um, 3,000-year-old stone shields, yes, you heard right, are excavated in China. And a dig in Scotland is revealing evidence of an ancient tsunami. We've got reports about the 3,000-year-old spice trade in Israel and prehistoric meteorite shrines in Arizona. I found this one absolutely fascinating. Lochgore Heritage Centre is redeveloped in Ireland. Going to be worth a visit to that one. And we have the excavation of prehistoric settlements in Quebec. Prehistoric Europeans, it seems, not only got themselves involved in spice trade, but we were learning that Mesolithic hunter-gatherers are spicing up their food. We have a quite unique and remarkable discovery in Ukraine. They've discovered a stone circle. And the Neanderthals, yes, it's been a while since we've talked about them. It seems that the hand-axe design is revealing that there was actually distinct Neanderthal cultures. It seems obvious... But, of course, you have to find the evidence. We've got an Iron Age hill fort under threat in Shropshire and an elusive chalk carving in Wanborough. So elusive and so fascinating. I'm actually going to investigate this one a little bit further. And we finish off with a bit of digital jiggery-pokery with an ancient Egyptian brewery being recreated in 3D. So where were we? Ah, yes, these ancient South Americans... Well, the heart of the Atacama Desert is the driest place on Earth, yet the first settlers of South America set up home there more than 12,000 years ago. Most of the desert's core was just as harsh as it was today. But Claudia Latora of the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile in Santiago and his colleagues have been excavating a site called Quebrada Mani, which lies 85 kilometres inland and 1,200 metres above sea level. At the moment, it only receives rain <laughs> a few times a century. Uh, coming from Scotland, I, I half wish that was true here as well. But no, I love my rain. Anyway, during the last Pleistocene in uh, the Atacama, this location harboured wetlands and woodlands that were fed by an increased rainfall further east in the central Andes. Excavations yielded a diverse cultural assemblage of stone tools, burned and cut bones, marine gastropods, pigments, plant fibres and even wooden artefacts alongside prepared fireplaces. Quibarada Mani could have been an important pit stop for heading inland, says the uh, 
Calaguera Santoro of the University of Tarapaca in Chile as well. Certain features of the site seem to correspond to the concept of a, shall we say, a base camp. You've got to think actually more in terms of oasis hopping in this situation. Silvia Gonzalez of Liverpool John Muir's University in the UK has found similar archaeological sites in the Mexican desert. If the settlers really were journeying between widely separated oases, then they must have had to be skilled navigators. Because certainly you don't want to be caught out there uh, in the wrong place. What they are also getting is um, signs of, shall we say, distant settlements exchanging items like obsidian glass and seashells amongst them. So this is a very, I mean, we're looking at 12,000 years ago, very early uh, concepts of sophisticated trade and uh, settlement exchange. Now, the one story which, uh, when I first read about it, I thought, what are they talking about? But anyway, it all became clear. It's these 3,000-year-old stone shields. A set of them were believed to have been used by nomads nearly 3,000 years ago and have been excavated up in the Zhengjing Autonomous Region of China. And the shields, pentagonal stones, one with a carved centre, a sort of a, a circle surrounded by herringbone patterns, were discovered at a site called the Sea of Flowers Lake in the Altai Mountains, which is bordering Mongolia. The researchers described the discovery as a breakthrough for research on the life of these ancient nomads. Archaeologists have compared the patterns carved on one shield with those that are on deer stones, the pentagons and herringbone, on many of the deer stones found on the Eurasian steppes. Deer stones are ancient megaliths, largely concentrated in Siberia and Mongolia, carved with depictions of, yes, you guessed it, deer. The patterns at the current site are especially similar to those from Mongolia's uh, Kovzgol province, roughly 2,000 kilometres to the east. However, do not worry, people were not wandering around with stone shields. It's most likely that these were ritual objects used for sacrifice or to drive out evil spirits. If you think about the later things like the um, terracotta warriors, many, many of the items they were wearing as actually stone. They were wearing stone armour. Utterly impractical, but obviously there was some ritual significance to this. Yes, you heard an archaeologist say the word ritual. Mm. Shocking. Let's move a little bit closer to home. We're actually heading to uh, excavations in Northumberland. Though I have to say we've actually been finding the same things in Scotland as well. Excavations at Low Hoxley near Druridge Bay in Northumberland have been unearthing material which experts say was deposited by a giant tidal wave which actually ends up cutting Britain off from the rest of Europe 8,000 years ago. Lead archaeologist Clive Waddington described the site as a staggering find. During the Mesolithic period, around 6,100 BCE, Britain becomes separated from the mainland Europe for good, after a massive landslide in Norway triggers a huge tsunami. The water struck the northeast of Britain and travelled 40 kilometres inland, also turning low-lying plains into what is now the North Sea. Dr. Waddington said that Low Hoxley site was the most southerly point on the British Isles where evidence of the tsunami has been found. They're hoping the discovery will flesh out the story of how Britain became an island, as well as telling more about the environment and what it was like in the area during the Mesolithic. 
Philippa Coburn of Archaeological Research Services said the deposits amounted to impressive new evidence of just how Britain formed, Britain as an island. She said that the deposits are in the form of water-rounded pebbles and rocks which are below Mesolithic soil at Low Hawksley. The soil contains thousands of flint tools which, based on their shape and method of manufacture, date them to around 6000 BCE. Prior to this event, Britain was still connected from an area around the Wash over to the Low Countries, a place called Doggerland. Now, from a a rather soggy beginning to a a warm and spicy one, researchers analysing the contents of 27 flasks from five archaeological sites in Israel that date back around 3,000 years have found that 10 of the flasks contained cinnamonaldehyde. Yes, you try saying that one. Indicating that cinnamon spice was being stored in these flasks. At that time, the closest place to the the finest form of cinnamon was in South India, in Sri Lanka, 5,000 kilometres away. At that time, the trade was uh, probably including the Phoenicians. People who were not sailing, of course, all the way to the Far East, but there would be a network of trade from Sri Lanka right up to the Near East. Researchers at Weizmann Institute of Science and Tel Aviv University say that the flasks that contained cinnamon were made locally. Flasks like these have been found in special places as well, such as treasuries and temple storerooms. They explained that the dried bark from the cinnamon tree would have been brought to Phoenicia, mixed with some form of liquid, and then placed in these flasks, afterwards shipped all over Phoenicia and the neighbouring regions. One possibility is that people were mixing the cinnamon with wine. Cinnamon is often used in mulled or spiced wine, for example. Now, this was a fascinating one. Two 12th century CE settlements 100 kilometres apart in Arizona have at least one thing in common, a hidden, hollow compartment that once held fragments of a 50,000-year-old meteorite. The sites themselves are not necessarily linked, but the practice is, so says Ken Zoll, a researcher in archaeoastronomy and executive director of the Verde Valley Archaeological Centre in Camp Verde and, of course, Arizona. Unlike the older pit houses and small masonry structures found elsewhere, the first of the two sites was an arrangement of Pueblo-style rooms that formed a near-perfect square, about 61 metres on each side. Inside its eastern wall was stone-lined kist that held a bundle wrapped in an ornate blanket made of turkey feathers. Inside was a 61-kilogram meteorite. The fact that it was wrapped in a feathered turkey blanket adds to the significance. Exactly, yes. I'm not sure how, but yes. While most residences were built in phases as communities grew, the public square seemed to have been built at once, suggesting it was made for a singular function. At the second site, around 115 kilometres to the north, another square stone kiss was found just below the surface. Under the lid... 24 kilos of iron meteorite, the largest single specimen of a partly melted meteorite found in this area. Analysis of both meteorites performed decades later have found them to be identical. Much of northern Arizona is strewn with all kinds of different sizes and shapes of meteorites all added. Detrius from the giant meteorite strike that formed Meteor Crater 50,000 years ago. Zoll had been discussing the two sites in a book to be published this autumn called Ancient Astronomy 
in central Arizona. His aim is for other archaeoastronomers, and that means you as well, Dougie. Yes, you. Other archaeoastronomers to look for these things. There could have been a lot more that we just don't know about. Just on a small aside, I am very much getting into a couple of things just now. One of them is archaeoastronomy. And that's looking at how people would interact with the well, stars, the moons, other heavenly bodies. And also kite camera work. I'm doing a lot of kite and uh, pole cam work, which is fascinating. It really gives you a different perspective on things. If you're interested in that, then I suggest that you type into Google kite Aerial photography or KAP cap work. It really is fascinating. And the, the person I have to thank for this one is John Wells uh, for introducing it to me and also for supplying me with uh, all the equipment so that I can be teaching other archaeologists and of course the school children as well who really enjoy this uh, amazing uh, aerial photography. It's, it's aerial photography in the grasp of everybody. That means you as well. Anyway, enough of that. Let's mo- move on to Lochgur Heritage Centre. Lochgur is in County Limerick, one of Ireland's most important archaeological sites. Humans have been living near the site since around 3000 BCE and there are numerous megalithic remains there, including the largest stone circle in Ireland. There's dolmens and the remains of at least three cranogs and even Stone Age houses and a number of ring forts. I have to say I've been there ages ago. It's absolutely brilliant. Jam-packed full of the archaeology. Now, a new chapter in the history of Locker has opened following the unveiling of a revamped heritage centre, which has undergone extensive improvement works to the tune of 500,000 euros. The list of works carried out include the extensive redesign and creation of a new exhibition detailing the 5,000 years of people living at Loch Gur. The Heritage Centre was originally opened by Shannon Heritage back in 1981 and was managed as a tourist facility by an umbrella organisation for 30 years. But now a new non-profit organisation took over, comprising of local residents. They decided that they wanted refurbishment. To assist members of the public on their visit, there are now several touchscreen displays, there's audio guides and listening points, and for the budding archaeologist, there's even an interactive dig and a dressing-up corner for those who wish to dress in old-style garments, as opposed to dressing up as archaeologists. I do that all the time. Self-guided tours have been designed to allow the independent traveller to saunter at an easy pace around the lake. Maps and trail information are freely available in the Heritage Centre reception area. There's also an option to book local guides trained by Michael Quinlan, who has been dedicated to a lifetime of studying, preserving and promoting the history and folklore of Loch Gur. Well, you're probably thinking to yourself, when should I go? Well, the opening times for the centre are 10am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, and 12pm to 6pm on Saturdays and Sundays. Yes, it's open seven days a week. Rates and additional information can be found on their website. That's www.lochgur.com. And I'll just spell that for you. It's L-O-U-G-H-G-U-R.com. Lochgur.com. Or why not phone the Heritage Centre directly? Say hello to them from me on 061-385-186. Now from Ireland, it's heading off to Canada, where a Canadian team 
has started its work at the Saunders Goose Pond settlement. The site was found last summer in northern Quebec, and it could actually date back 7,000 years. When archaeological crews were digging near the Smoky Hill Rapids site last summer, they expected to find artefacts and pottery dating back maybe 150 years. So it came as a bit of a surprise when one discovery was linked to very, very pre-European times. It's very obviously quite different and very old, says James Chisholm, the curator of archaeology at the Institute. Chisholm's pretty excited because they don't have a lot of sites like this in Quebec, and this one could be up to 7,000 years old. It's a time period that they know very little about. Chisholm said that the area where the artefacts were found was likely once a peninsula or island, even though the site is now 63 metres above sea level. It's possibly the territory was a campsite, but archaeologists won't know for sure until the team get a better look at the settlement itself. Chisholm hopes they'll be able to narrow down the timeline using geological surveys and tests on any organic materials that they might find, including charcoal or bone. Now, a recent study led by Haley Saul of the University of York found that at least some of our prehistoric ancestors liked to spice up their food for a more palatable cuisine. By examining isolated carbonized food deposits from pottery shards dated from around 6,100 to 3,750 BP from three sites in Denmark and Germany, Saul and colleagues have identified phytoliths from plant remains that are very likely mustard garlic seeds. Phytoliths are created when plants absorb silica from the soil. The silica is then deposited within different intracellular and extracellular structures of the plant, and after the plant decays, are redeposited back in the soil in the form of phytoliths, which are rigid, microscopic structures of varying sizes and shapes. These phytoliths are naturally decay-resistant and are thus preserved in the soil and other contexts ready to be discovered and examined by archaeologists. That's us thousands of years later. In addition to the phytoliths, most of the sample study contained evidence for marine and terrestrial animal, as well as starchy plant food, all carbonized together with the phytoliths, suggesting that the garlic seed uh, substance was carbonized concurrent with the other animal and plant foods in the pot as food for consumption. While all of the food types identified in the analysis indicate substances with nutritional and calorie-rich value, the garlic mustard seed is known to have no such value whatsoever. Moreover, garlic mustard seed spice made from plants ranging from Europe to Central Asia, Northern India and Western China also have a very strong peppery mustardy flavour to them and are even used today to flavour salads and sauces such as pesto. So salt concludes, along with her colleagues, that despite the modest number of samples, it is demonstrated beyond doubt that the use of spice was practiced regularly during the decades when domesticates were introduced to the Western Baltic region. It's now established that the habit of enhancing and altering the flavour of calorie-rich staples was part of the European cuisine as far back as the 7th millennium B.P., The study authors add that it's still uncertain if the practice was the result of Neolithic influence ultimately derived from the Near East or from Old World, uh, where, sorry, that's where Old World, world, I can't even say it, Old World farming originates or if such advanced culinary practice was developed locally prior to the arrival of Neolithic elements in Northern Europe. Well, we're just going to have to try and work out that one on their own. I do like the idea, though, that, um, you know, eventually you think to yourself, well, my food basically just tastes 
well, of food. You, you, you could sort of go around the garden and picking up sort of plants and tasting them. Surely the next step is to add it to your food to see what happens next. Anyway, stone circles in Ukraine. It's been found by a team of archaeologists discovered at an ancient burial ground with rich tombs. This was found during research into a Roman camp at the village of Kartal in Ukraine. It was very surprising that an area where they expected to find the edge of a Roman cemetery and a small number of objects, what they ended up discovering was a 3,000-year-old stone circle filled full of rich graves. Archaeologists found burials of the so-called Hallstatt period containing bronze bracelets, vessels, including cups and bowls, that were placed on the head of the deceased. The burials also contained stones under the heads, which archaeologists interpret as supports for their head. The dead were positioned on a north-south axis in a contracted position on their right side, with their legs pulled up tight and hands pressed against their chests. Now, to the Neanderthals, a study by a postgraduate researcher at the University of Southampton has found that Neanderthals were more culturally complex than previously acknowledged. Two cultural traditions existed amongst Neanderthals living in what is now northern Europe between 115 and 35,000 years ago. Dr Karen Rubens of the Centre of Archaeology of Human Origins and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council examined the design of 1,300 stone tools originating from 80 Neanderthal sites in five European countries. That's in France, Germany, Belgium, Britain and the Netherlands. Dr. Rubin's investigations uncovered new evidence that two separate hand-axe traditions or designs existed, one in a region now spanning southwest France and Britain, the other in Germany and further to the east. In addition, she found an area covering modern Belgium and the Netherlands that demonstrates a transition between the two styles. She comments in Germany and France there appears to be two separate hand-axe traditions with clear boundaries indicating completely separate independent development. The transition zone in Belgium and northern France indicates contact between these two different groups of Neanderthals, which is generally difficult to identify but has been much talked about, especially in relation to later contacts with groups of modern humans. The area can be seen as a melting pot of ideas where mobile groups of Neanderthals, both from the East and Western tradition, would pass by influencing each other's designs and leaving behind a more varied record of bifacial tools. The University of Southampton research has revealed Neanderthals in the western region made symmetrical, triangular and heart-shaped hand axes, while during the same time period in the eastern region they produced asymmetrically shaped bifacial knives. Dr Rubin says distinct ways of making a hand axe were passed on from generation to generation and for long enough to become visible in the archaeological record. This indicates a strong mechanism of social learning within these two groups and says something about the stability and connectivity of the Neanderthal populations. Making stone tools was not merely an opportunistic task. A lot of time, effort and tradition were invested and these tools carry a certain amount of sociocultural information which does not contribute directly to their function. The study's extensive analysis also shows other factors which could have influenced hand-axe design, such as raw material availability to the Neanderthals, the function of the sites, or the repeated reuse and sharpening of tools. It turns out this did not have an impact upon their shape. 
Absolutely amazing. It must have been really good to when actually adding up all the data and uh, realizing that what you have is actually Neanderthal culture staring you right back in the face. Now, oh, good grief, King Arthur. One of the many legends surrounding King Arthur is that, uh, in fact, one of the least known ones as well, is that uh, the Hillfort in Oistry is the birthplace of Queen Guinevere. Well, the true origins of Guinevere, like Arthur, are shrouded in mystery and legend, but this site isn't. Strong opposition has been raised to a proposal for development, housing development, directly next to the Hillfort itself. Well, John Wayne, the organiser of the online petition, is quoted as saying this is recognised as the best preserved Iron Age fort in Britain and the development would be potentially damaging. Modern houses should not be built up to the edge of it. I absolutely agree with this. In response, a spokesman for the local authority said that they would neither say if they could approve or disallow the um, development at this moment in time, but Simon Alton is quoted as saying that they appreciate the sensitivities regarding the site. Comments have been considered for both the Council's Historic Environment Officers and English Heritage about potential developments in these locations. All comments will be taken into account before any such decision is made. Well, I've also signed that petition as well, and uh, I suggest you do too. Now, this was a very interesting story. Wanborough is a very small village in Wiltshire in England, located close to the Roman Ermine Street and currently the M4 motorway. The Romans named the village Durocornovium, but the current name has Saxon origins. In terms of history, this would probably be enough for most villages, but oh, not Wanborough. It has a much older one, perhaps. In 1966... An aerial photographic survey was carried out to record the area's features before the M4 motorway was ploughed through the countryside. The negatives from these surveys were never printed, but simply stored away. Then in 1974, they came into the possession of local archaeologist Bryn Walters, director of the Association for Roman Archaeology. He was examining the area for possible undiscovered archaeology. What he saw in the developed photographs proved to be quite astonishing. Staring back at him from a hillside was a faint image of not one but two giant chalk carvings. This type of carving has been found elsewhere, but most notably at places like the Offington White Horse, as well as down in Dorset and Sussex carved into the chalk downs, but there's never been any record in this area. The first figure, believed to be approximately 60 metres high, is of a figure about to throw a spear. The second figure, at 85 metres high, is horned and believed to be a representation of Woden, the Norse god. It's thought that, although probably neglected and allowed to be overgrown, the figures were relatively untouched for thousands of years. Then in 1940, to help boost domestic food production during the Second World War, the hillsides were intensively farmed and ploughed aiding their eventual disappearance and making them invisible. Although further attempts were made to photograph and scan the site, no current traces of either figure can now be found. Like most hillside carvings, they were quite shallow. The original photographs have, however, been authenticated and any rumours of them being a hoax has been dispelled. So that the speared figure could even date back as far as the Neolithic period, but there's just no way of verifying that. Bryn Walters voices his frustration, saying, 
for them to have survived for so long and destroyed so close to now is absolutely maddening. But in fact, you can help. If you know about these figures or actually have any photographs, then you can get in touch with them. The best way to do that is actually to uh, find him at the Association for Roman Archaeology website. Well, we have nearly made it to the end of the news, and it just allows me to raise a glass to you for sticking with us. The glass I'm going to raise is, of course, a piece of um, beer from ancient Egypt. So... A three-dimensional representation of a five-and-a-half-thousand-year-old brewery has been reconstructed by a PhD student from the Institute of Archaeology in Poland. 3D computer modelling is a common feature of modern building design and the software available is now quite advanced. The site, which was investigated to provide data for the model, was at Tel el-Farasha in the eastern Nile Delta of Egypt. The discovery predates the previously oldest known brewery, also in Egypt at Hieriakonopolis, south of Luxor. Beer was often drunk in preference to water at this time. Boiling the water was part of the brewing process, and when brewed with barley, honey, herbs and spices, it became a rather safe and rather tasty drink. The model was built up in 2D layers using information from the site investigations. It was deliberately left as if in various stages of construction so that the inner detail could be more readily seen. The brewery comprised of three segments arranged like the leaves of a clover. Each segment had its own circular brewing vessel supported by clay bricks. It's thought that the design allowed the brewers to maintain a constant temperature around the vessels, which leads to a higher quality and consistent output. Very important to me as well. Well, it just goes for me to say, uh, well, what are you going to do without me for a week or two? Uh, you can always pop along to Past Horizons, yeah, com to keep up with the news there. And, of course, I will not be letting good old Badger go while I am abroad. You can always find me at org, where the jobs will just keep on coming. And remember, more can always be found at the fabulous Stone Pages. That's news.stonepages.com. So thank you again for listening to the Archaeology News and we hope you will return to us when I get back in a week or two's time. Mm-hmm.